Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 59 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Today's guest, Jill, realized something in the months after her daughter Hannah's death. She realized that she just desired to be around other grieving parents, to hear their stories, to share advice and information, and to really just learn from each other and enjoy each other's company. She and her husband started talking about the idea of going to a bereaved parents retreat. Although it took them a while to go, they finally did go, and in it really found a source of healing. During those months, the seeds really became planted, and they started to think about what it would be like to start retreats of their own. Jill's story really feels so similar to mine and that I really felt called to start a podcast, even though I knew nothing about doing podcasts. Jill also really felt called to start hosting retreats, even though she's a self-described introvert who really didn't think that this would be something that she could do easily. Now, her organization called While We're Waiting which is based in Arkansas, can be found all over the country. They have sites in many different states and are expanding even now during the time of COVID. I'm so excited to share this ministry with you so that you can learn more about While We're Waiting and what they can offer you. so much, Jill, for agreeing to come on the show today. I am super excited to talk to you today. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So why don't you start out by just telling us all about your daughter? All right. Well, I love to talk about her, so I'm, I'm happy to do that. My daughter, Hannah, was our firstborn. Um, we got married when we were just in our early 20s, and uh, she came along just as we were kind of finishing up our education, our graduate school and all. And so we were just thrilled to have her as part of our family. She was just a wonderful, wonderful kid. Of course, you know, everybody thinks their kid is the best kid ever, but of course, uh, she, we wouldn't be good parents if we exactly, didn't. Exactly. No. Exactly. She's just one of these kids that just loved to please and was very compliant and just, um, just a lot of fun. She, um, you know, grew up, she, as she became a teenager, I always kind of like to describe her and talking about the things that she loved. One of the Mm -hmm. things that she loved was American Idol. She was such a huge fan of that show from the very beginning of it. And we would, I mean, we actually kind of structured our lives around American Idol episodes and she would always choose her favorite and she would spend, you know, two hours after every episode voting 
for her favorite. And she was apparently pretty good at it because usually the people that she chose as her favorites would win the season. And uh, we would go to the concerts when they would do their American Idol tour. We would go to the concerts and kind of stalk them and get their autographs and things like that. So that was something wow. fun, fun that we shared together. She was together. a fan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She <laughs> was a fan. The One of the other things that she loved was school. She was a very driven student, very, um, very competitive uh, with the other kids in her class. She wanted to be the first in her class. She wanted to have the best grades on everything. She was one of these kids that when the teacher would give an assignment that was due in two weeks, she would start it, you know, the day she got the assignment. Um, my younger daughter, we have another daughter who's three and a half years younger than Hannah. She's the kid who waits until 10 o'clock the night before. But Hannah was always the one, she was right on top of everything. And her goal was to be the valedictorian of her class. And she was headed that way. Another thing that's kind of interesting is her dad, my husband, was her high school principal. And so, wow. yeah, yeah. And I'm, No pressure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic when you're a student and your, your dad is the principal. And it's a, a small district. And uh, I was a working as a speech pathologist in the district also. So our life very much revolved around school. We actually were all sure. four in school kind of together all the time, which was neat. You know, lots of neat memories from that time. Um, another thing that she loved was her family. She was very much a homebody, uh, loved to be with her family, loved her extended family, her aunts and uncles and her grandparents. And when she had a birthday party, she didn't want to invite all of her friends. She wanted to invite all of her family, her Aww. grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins. And so those were the kinds of parties that we would have. And that was a lot of fun. And then another thing that she loved was, was God. She was a very um, active part of her church youth group and went on mission trips. And that was just a huge part of her life. So that's the way I like to talk about her is the things that she loved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. So why don't you go and talk now about what happened to Hannah? Yeah, sure. Valentine's Day of 2008, she woke up that morning and um, came out into the kitchen where I was, and she said, Mom, I have a terrible headache. And then she ran to the bathroom, was sick to her stomach. And, you know, that was unusual. That had not happened sure. before. But I thought, you know, she's got some kind of bug, something's going on. Said, hey, you know, just stay home from school today. So she did. She went back to bed and slept for a few hours and woke up a little bit later and felt fine. No, her headache was gone stomach was fine. Everything was fine. Um, so I thought, well, you know, that was a strange little bug that she had, but I guess she's over yeah. it. Everything seemed to be fine. The next morning, the same thing happened again. Uh, she woke up in the morning, severe headache, sick to her stomach and, you know, let her stay home from school again, trying to figure out what's going on. You know, we kind of thought maybe she's having some sinus headache issues, some sinus drainage, and that's making her sick and giving her headache. And, so after a couple of days of that, she went back to school uh, because the girl didn't want to miss yeah. school. And uh, she called me um, that first afternoon that she was back at school. And she said, you know, mom, I still have, still have this headache. It's not as bad as it's been, but I have double vision all of a sudden. And I, you know, that alarmed me. And I said, well, I tell you what, stay there. I'm going to come pick you up and we're going to the doctor this afternoon. And she's like, no, no, I've got a test. I want to take, you know, I don't want to leave school. 
<laughs> I said, oh. okay, that's fine. You stay as soon as you get home, you know, let's talk about this. So she got home that afternoon and I looked at her and I could see in her eyes, her pupils were very dilated. And, you know, that alarmed me also. And yeah. I said, okay, we're going to the doctor first thing in the morning, no matter what. So we did. We went to our, just our family doctor and he looked at her, examined her, couldn't find anything, you know, that just really jumped out at him. But obviously her pupils were still dilated. She still had the double vision, headaches and all of that. And she said, he said, you know, I tell you what, with, with everything that seems to be going on with her vision, let's refer her to an ophthalmologist. And he wrote us a little um, referral to an ophthalmologist and handed it to us. And he said, you know, call, I'm going to call ahead and get you an appointment with this guy. Okay. So we walked out of that office and I looked at that written referral and the ophthalmologist that we had been referred to was a guy named uh, Dr. Thomas Mosley. Well, we had gone to college with Tommy Mosley. Um, <laughs> didn't know that he had become an ophthalmologist somewhere along the way from our college years. In fact, he had sung in our wedding and uh, my husband wow. had been a groomsman in his wedding. But you know how you lose touch with people over the years. And turns out he had grown up and become an ophthalmologist and was practicing part-time in our town. And that's who we were referred to. So we walked into his office and were, you know, just kind of got reacquainted with Tommy. It was, it was really neat that he was the guy that we were sent to. And um, he examined her also. And he said, you know, I'm not sure what's going on with her, but if it were my child, I'd want her to have an MRI. And so we said, okay. And so he scheduled us an MRI for the very next morning. Woke up the next morning and she was fine. She didn't have a headache. Her pupils were back to normal. Everything seemed to be okay. And I almost canceled the MRI because I thought, you know, whatever this was, it's over. We're fine. Yeah. But I thought, you know, Tommy went to the trouble to set that up for us. We, we probably better go. And so we went, started the MRI. And I'm sitting there, you know, listening to the banging sound of the MRI. And uh, the, the technician was in her little booth. And about halfway through, she opened her door and came out to me. And she handed me a couple of uh, free lunch tickets for the hospital cafeteria. And she said, you know, when this is over, I want you and Hannah to go down and have lunch in the cafeteria. <laughs> and I said, you know, I have a, this another child. And Bethany, our other daughter, had actually been diagnosed with mono just a few days before. So she was home. I had left her at home alone while we went and got this uh, MRI. But I was concerned about it. I was ready to get back home. I said, you know, I really don't want to hang around. I, I have this other kid at home. I want to I leave when this is over. And she said, oh, okay. Went back in her booth. The MRI was finished after that, um, helping Hannah get up off that table. And she once again, the technician once again handed me those tickets and said, please go down and have lunch in the cafeteria. Um, she says, I just need to check all these films and make sure we got everything we needed. And then when we're done, come back by here um, on your way out. And you know, my mom radar was going off, wondering why, why what's going on? Um, why am I being invited to have lunch in the cafeteria instead of just heading home? But we complied, we went and had lunch, kind of a rushed lunch, because I just, I was honestly more concerned about our daughter Bethany than I was Hannah at that moment, because Bethany with the mono seemed a lot sicker than Hannah did. Sure. I was anxious sure. to get home. So we rushed kind of through our lunch, went back by the MRI suite, walked in, and the technician had kind of pulled our chairs together, and she set us down. 
and she said, your ophthalmologist called and he is on his way over to talk to you about the MRI results. And then I knew, you know, I knew yeah. something, something was wrong. And he got there very quickly after that. He walked Hannah and I into the little booth where we could look at the screen ourselves. And he said, Hannah has a brain tumor. And he showed us right there. Um, the tumor was, you know, just this big white spot about the size of an egg right in the center of her brain. And, you know, of course, Hannah and I started crying immediately, um, just not knowing what was going on. He set us down and, you know, I'm so glad we had a relationship with him prior to this um, because oh, yeah. he was so kind and compassionate. He prayed with us. Um, he gathered up all of our films and put them in a big envelope and he walked us out a back way from the hospital so we didn't have to walk out in front of everyone in our emotional state. He offered to drive us home even. And uh, I said, no, you know, I can drive. But he said, he said, she obviously, you know, has this brain tumor. She's going to need surgery. I can either call ahead to Arkansas Children's Hospital and have them prepared for you to be there tonight, or I can have them ready for you to arrive in the morning. Which would you rather do? And I said, well, I'd rather wait until morning and have one more night of, you know, somewhat normalcy at home and talk to my husband and daughter and, you know, mm -hmm. kind of get our feet under us. And he said, well, since she's not in any acute distress, that's what we'll do. I'll have them ready for you to arrive in the morning. So I had to walk home or drive home then and uh, tell my husband and other daughter that Hannah had a brain tumor. In fact, she got out of the car and told her dad herself, dad, I've got a brain tumor. And that news was just so unbelievable. That is not what we were expecting to hear. We have a neighbor who is a retired pastor and we called him and we said, would you come, come down, come down the hill and uh, talk to us. And he came and we shared with him the news and he prayed with us and he gave us a scripture, which is Nahum 1, 7. It says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And, you know, that was the verse we ended up kind of clinging to the whole year that we were on this journey. Um, we checked into Children's Hospital the next morning. They were there ready for us, immediately did another MRI just to check and make sure we were just looking at that one spot in the brain. She had surgery a few days later and the surgery was successful. You know, the surgeon came out, said we were able to get it all, you know, best possible outcome. You know, it's a terrifying thing to send your child in for brain surgery because you don't know what kind of condition they're going to be when they come out. You know, but I'm a speech pathologist. I'm thinking, you know, I can help her with her speech. We could get her physical therapy if she has any issues. But you know what? She came out of surgery fine with really no side effects from her brain surgery. And so we were so thankful for that. We went home a few days later, knowing that we were going to be returning to find out the results mm -hmm. of the biopsy. So we're home for a few days, you know, recovering, return to the hospital to get the results and get her staples removed. And when we walked into the room, there was our surgeon and there was another physician there and then a whole bunch of other people that we realized later were counselors because they weren't mm -hmm. sure how we were going to respond to the news we were about to get. Our surgeon talked with us for a few minutes about the surgery and her recovery and then he introduced us to the other doctor who was an oncologist. And he told us that the biopsy results showed that Hannah's tumor was a grade four glioblastoma tumor. And he said, 
you know, I'm the kind of person, as soon as he said that, I'm thinking in my mind, okay, how do you spell that? Because as soon as I walk out of here, I'm Googling that. I'm going to learn everything I can about it. And he, he knew what I was thinking. He said, don't go home and Google glioblastoma. He said, you won't like what you read. I know you're a physician. You know what that means. Oh, yes. Um, he said, it is a, it's a terminal diagnosis, but it's not typically seen in children. He said, she's 16. She's healthy. Otherwise, we're going to do chemotherapy. We're going to do radiation. And we're going to try to beat this. So, you know, we walked out of there shaken mm-hmm. to the core. I did not Google glioblastoma. We decided we were going to go on, on faith. You know, we knew God had this, but you know, it was just a couple weeks later, a few weeks later that Ted Kennedy was diagnosed with glioblastoma. And of course, everything on the news, everything you heard on the news was how aggressive and deadly glioblastoma cancer is. So of course I tried to protect her from all of that and tried not to listen to it myself, but you know, I did follow his, uh, his story and his treatment and, she was getting the exact same treatment protocol in Little Rock, Arkansas, that he was getting wherever he was being uh, treated. And so I knew that she was getting the best treatment available. Um, she did six weeks of radiation, uh, very targeted radiation to that one spot in her brain and a, and a pill form of chemotherapy. She would go to school, you know, like I said, she loved school, didn't want to miss school. She would go to school every day till about seventh period. I would pick her up. We would drive the hours drive to Little Rock. She would get her radiation treatment. We would drive back home. She would do her homework. She'd swallow her handful of chemo pills, go to bed. And we'd do that every day for about six weeks. And she really did remarkably well through that. She was able to stay in school. Um, You know, there are a couple times that that radiation or chemo was postponed due to blood counts or whatever. But for the most part, she sailed through that part of the treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an MRI every six weeks to, to see, you know, make sure it was not returning. And every six weeks she had an all clear. So she finished her sophomore year with straight A's, <laughs> her goal. Um, had a pretty good summer that summer. Started into her junior year. Things were going well. Um, they had told us we were going to be on this chemo regimen for 12 months and never really talked about what came after that. And in, in my mind, 12 months on this chemo and then she'll be cured. Right. Um, she was on the chemo for about seven months. We started um, school in her junior year, September of that year. Some of those symptoms began to come back, you know, um, headache, nausea. I noticed some balance issues. So I called her nurse up there at Children's and I said, you know, I'm seeing some things that are concerning me. It had only been six weeks since her last MRI and everything had been fine. She said, well, go ahead and bring her in and we'll scan her and just see what's going on. And so we brought her in and they scanned her. Normally they would just scan her brain. This time, Somebody called down from up above as the scan was going on and said, okay, do spine also. So we knew. Uh, The next day, got the phone call that the cancer had returned. It was on her brainstem. She had two or three spots on her brainstem, and she had so many tumors on her spine that they called them snowdrift tumors. Her, when you looked at the MRI slide, it looked like there was just snow on her spine. So, you know, at this point, there's no there's no surgery you can do for that. They called us in and talked to us about how she had less than a 5% chance of survival at this point. 
but that we were going to try another kind of another type of radiation radiation that went from the top of her head to her tailbone it was called tomotherapy it actually went all the way around her body and radiated her um, and then an IV chemotherapy. And so we started that and she finished the radiation. She got through all of it, but wow, that much radiation is really hard on the body. Um, she was no longer able to, to produce platelets on her own. She had to have a platelet infusion every other day from October through February when she went to heaven um, just to keep her platelet counts within semi-normal range. She really just never recovered from that point on. Um, she was not able to go to school anymore at that point, other than a few days she went in December. But she began to decline, you know, physically um, in, in every way. And she went to heaven on February 26th of 2009. You know, she was just amazing the way she, she battled that cancer. I do need to tell you one quick story about her that will help you get to know her just a little bit more. A couple of nights before she had her surgery, I had gone home to rest because I knew from the surgery on I was going to be the one staying with her. And so Brad, my husband, was with her that night. And as they were getting ready for bed, she said, Dad, I need to tell you something. Uh, she said that she had been at a youth retreat with our church just a few months prior to being diagnosed. And she said, you know, they had a youth speaker come in and he talked to the kids about how God sometimes allows storms in our lives to bring us closer to him and to allow others to see him through our storms. And she said, I went to bed that night and I thought about my life. You know, this is a 16 year old girl thinking about her life. And she said, you know, dad, I realized I had never had a storm in my life. And she was right. You know, we, we had had a really what you would call a charmed existence to that point. You know, her, mm -hmm. her grandparents were all still living. You know, she had never, no one in our family had ever dealt with a health crisis of any kind. Everything was very stable and, and good. And she said, I realized I had never had a storm in my life. And she said, I prayed that God would give me a storm so that others could see him in me through my storm. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of maturity for a 16-year-old girl. Um, and we looked at that as, you know, we don't believe that God heard her prayer for a storm and decided to give her cancer. No. Right. What we believe is that, you know, God, God is sovereign. He knew what was coming in her life. Mm -hmm. And he was preparing her. When she prayed that prayer, she didn't know what was coming, but he did. And mm -hmm. so when she did get the news about a month later that she had cancer, she accepted that as her storm, and that was her attitude through the entire year. Her surgery was on February 25th of 2008. She went to heaven on February 26th of 2009, so it was just exactly a year that, that she battled this, and, you know, she would always say, I'm okay. No matter what happened, no matter what the MRI said, no matter what was going on, she would always say, I'm okay. I'm fine. Mom and dad, don't worry. I'm okay, you know, because we were, we were not nearly as okay as she was as right. we were going through this. But, you know, I always say she taught us how to live well, and she taught us how to die well. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for her. I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to be her mom. And I'm grateful for what I learned through her storm. That's a beautiful story. Thank you. I want you to tell the audience about what you have done 
since Hannah's death because you have done some really beautiful things. Sure. The last eight days of Hannah's life, we spent at a hospice center in Little Rock and people, people were wonderful and they would come and bring us food and coffee and books and, and all kinds of things. Lots of books. You know, when you, when you go through the loss of a child, everybody gives you a book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So by the time I got eight, I got eight copies of Lament for a Son. Oh, well, it's a good but, one. I, it is a good one, but, <laughs> but yeah, I didn't you don't really need eight, need eight copies. copies. Right. Yeah. No. You could pass those out to others. but I did. I passed yes, out many. Exactly. So, yes. But yeah. So you end up with a stack of books, you know, that's, that's several books tall. And while we were there, somebody came and brought a book called Holding On to Hope by Nancy Guthrie. I've read that. Oh, it's wonderful. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I obviously didn't read it at the time. It was later after Hannah had gone to heaven and I was ready to read something again. Out of all the stack of books that I was given, that was the book I was drawn to. And, you know, when you read the back cover and you know Nancy's story of losing two babies, it really didn't seem like a book that would be that relevant to my situation and losing a teenager to cancer. But it was when I started reading the book and and found out that her babies both had been diagnosed with a terminal condition. Well, that was exactly the situation that we were in. You know, our daughter was 16, Mm -hmm. but she was diagnosed with a terminal condition. And that book was all about struggling with your faith and struggling with um, the sovereignty of God in a situation like that. And you pray for healing and you know Mm -hmm. that God can heal and sometimes does heal, yet he does not choose to heal your child. So yes. that book was exactly what I needed to be reading at the time. And so I ended up getting on Nancy's website and discovered that she and her husband host retreats for bereaved parents in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was intrigued by that because one of the things that I discovered very early on after Hannah went to heaven is that people that we were the most comfortable with, the people that we craved to spend time with were other parents that had lost children. So I was interested in the concept of going to a retreat with bereaved parents, but I am a natural introvert and Mm. not typically a retreat person, which is funny since that's what we do now. And, you know, I talked to my husband about it, who is an extrovert. And he was like, yeah, let's go. That sounds great. And I said, well, I don't want to go. I just think it sounds cool. (laughs) Sounds like a neat thing to do. So we didn't go, but, you know, I would got on our email list and I would get an email from time to time whenever they were scheduling another retreat. And, you know, every time I read about those retreats, I was just like, man, we need to go to this. This is so far outside my comfort zone but this is something we need to go to. And so we, we went and it was the best thing by far we had done in our grief journey. There were people there from 11 different States in Canada and our stories were all very different, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter matter at all. Right. Mm -hmm. If it was a stillborn baby or a 50 year old adult child, the pain is the same. Mm-hmm. And um, we bonded with those people and are still bonded with, with many of the people that we met that weekend. But while we were there, we just kept talking about how much we loved it and how much we wanted to bring this concept of a retreat back home to Arkansas and start hosting this same type of retreat there. So we, we came home from that retreat. We talked about it. We prayed about it. We, we talked to pretty much anybody that would listen to us about this retreat but we really didn't have any kind of catalyst to move us forward, to get us started in this. And then we met a couple named Larry and Janice Brown. They go to church with us and they have a son 
who was a Navy SEAL named Adam. Um, and Adam was killed in action in Afghanistan in March of 2010, just about a year after Hannah went to heaven, February 2009. We went to the same church with them, but we didn't know them. You know, it's a pretty big church and they kind of sit on one side of the church and we sit on the other. And you know how that is, you, especially if you're an introvert like me, you don't ever cross over and meet the people sitting on the other side. Um, they're also a little bit older than us. So they had a different kind of circle of friends. So even though we were in the same church, we didn't know them. But when Adam was killed, um, of course, you know, that got our attention. And, and one Sunday, we invited them to go to lunch with us. And they were still very new on their grief journey. And we did. We went to lunch and had a great lunch. And just like we said, you know, we had everything in common, even though our stories were so different. Their son was 36 years old and was killed in, in the war. Our daughter was 17 and died of cancer. Um, but it didn't matter. You know, we bonded immediately. And we, we sat down to eat with them thinking, you know, it'd be an hour lunch or something. Well, three and a half hours later, we're still sitting in this restaurant. And we told them about this retreat we had been to and how it was so helpful to us and how we really wanted to start doing something like that here in our local area. And these folks who we were meeting for the very first time, who were just a few months into their grief journey, said, well, let's do it. And we said, yeah. okay. And so that's where it began. We hosted our first retreat for bereaved parents in April of 2011. We did it at a Christian day camp just outside of town. It was um, a very rustic location. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, it was a camp. And so it was a children's camp. So the accommodations were bunk room style. We had, there was a bunk room for men and a bunk room for women. Um, our first couple of groups that came had to bring their own linens. But you know what? We had wonderful retreats there because there's just, I don't know, there's just something that happens <laughs> when bereaved parents get together and are able to spend uninterrupted time sharing our children's stories, talking about issues that only other bereaved parents understand, sharing things that you can't tell your best friend, your own mother, you know, because they yeah. don't get it unless they've lost right. a child. Um, and just being things that might scare them. Exactly. Actually. Exactly. Like, mm -hmm. We can say things to other bereaved parents that would alarm other people sometimes. Oh, yes. Um, yes. And we can completely share those things without having to wear that mask that sometimes we wear as bereaved parents without having to be afraid of, of judgment uh, without mm -hmm. having to be afraid somebody's going to think we're crazy. We can talk about all those things. Because we think we're crazy enough anyway, right? Exactly. You think you are crazy. So yeah, it's not just fearing that other people will think that. You already think that. So now if you can be around people who can assure you that that is not true, exactly. that is so helpful. Exactly. And that's one of the most common things we hear is, oh, you too? I thought I was mm -hmm. the only one, you know, who felt that way or did that, this thing. So yeah, we did retreats there for five years. How often did you do them? We did them just twice a year at first. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were, um, it was just word of mouth, basically, you know, that, that that's how we got the word out about these events. But we eventually got a website, developed a Facebook presence and all that kind of thing. And, and the word began to spread. And before long, the demand grew far beyond what we were able to offer. We, we started out just doing these retreats for bereaved parents, a weekend long retreat from a Friday night through a Sunday morning 
first we thought it would just be for couples and then we realized well why not have singles too and so we opened it up to both couples and singles we also started offering one day retreats that were just for moms we saw a need for that for um you know couple time is great or mixed group time is great but we also saw there's a lot of value in having events that are just for moms and events that are just for dads so we started offering one day we call them mini retreats for moms and one day dad's days um, and we would do those in different locations and again like i said the the demand began to grow to the point where we had to start seeking out other locations because family farm this Christian camp where we were meeting could only host us twice a year. So we began to kind of search out different locations and things. And we did one in Picayune, Mississippi. We did one in Wichita Falls, Texas. Um, we did a couple of them in Northwest Arkansas, just trying to find different places. But even with that, the demand was such that people would want to come to a retreat and we'd have to tell them, well, you know, it's going to be a year or a year and a half before we can get you in, but we'll put you on this waiting list. And we just, oh, it just killed us to do that. So we knew we needed something that, where we could host these as often as we needed to. So um, Larry and Janice Brown, our partners in this ministry, had an old house that had been built in the 70s that they had lived in for a period of time. It's out in the country. They had moved out of it many years ago, but they've kept it all of this time. They never had sold it. They never really did anything with it. It's just been sitting. They, they would let different people live in it. Uh, missionaries just coming in off the field or young pastors, families just starting out, but it had kind of fallen into disrepair and it had just kind of been sitting out here. And one night we went out to look at this place to see if there was any possible way we could turn this old house into a retreat center. And mm -hmm. it's a very long story how it all came to be, but this little three bedroom, two bath ranch house is now a 13 bedroom, 15 bathroom <laughs> retreat center with a large dining wow. room, commercial kitchen. Um, it's on a beautiful piece of rolling hill property with a pond, walking trail, fire pit, fountain out front. I mean, it's just amazing. And when we met together to talk about transforming this little house into a retreat center, we made a commitment between the four of us that we were not going to borrow any money, that we were going to just kind of step out on faith in this thing. And one thing that the four of us are really bad at doing is fundraising. We are, ter we are probably the four worst fundraisers in the world, and we had no idea how we were going to raise funds for this property. In fact, when we first started with this concept, we went out and talked to the folks that had been partnering with us out there at Family Farm. They had lost their son and they had, that's why they had welcomed us with open arms when we came to this idea of hosting retreats. And we said, you know, we need to, we need to build this thing. There was a architect that volunteered his time and drew us this beautiful concept drawing and told us it was going to cost a million dollars to do this, the renovations that we needed to do on this property to turn it into a retreat center. And we told them, we said, you know, we, we really feel like this is something God's calling us to do, but we're going to need a lot of money in order to do this. In our checking account, our while we're waiting checking account, we had $3,000 at that time. We don't charge for our retreats. So we had no income. We have no income source at that time. So we said, we're going to have to raise a lot of money. And Mama May is what we call her out there at the camp. She said, no, no, you don't. She says, you start and God will provide. And when she said that, we were like, you know, she's right. We just need to start. It may take us 10 years to finish this thing, but we just need to start. Marcy, we started 
And that place was finished in about 15 months at a cost of about $450,000 debt free. God provided finances. He provided workers. He provided materials. It's just an incredible, incredible story. We could do an entirely separate podcast on that. But um, so we had our first retreat here at, we call it the refuge in October of 2016. Um, And we've had a number of retreats here since all together in the, since April of 2011, when we started this, we've had um, about 140 retreats between the full weekend retreats, the mom's days, the dad days. And just this past weekend, um, we passed over 900 people, individual people who have attended a retreat over the last 10 years. Even with building the refuge, and we probably do, between the different kinds of retreats, we probably do 15, probably about 20 actually events a year here at the refuge. The need is still so great that we have started retreat locations and other areas uh, where we rent facilities or they're in the facilitator's home. We do retreats in Maryland, in Oregon, in Huntsville, Alabama. We're going to be starting in Arizona and Nevada. God just keeps opening doors. And then there's several other locations that I don't even want to mention yet. The board has approved for us to do them in these other locations. We're still working out the details. So I don't want to say them yet until we know for sure that they are set. Mm -hmm. But God is just opening up opportunities for us to bring this ministry to other areas of the country. And we're very thankful for that because we know not everybody can travel all the way to Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're thankful. I know my friend Stephanie and I, when we heard about it, we started looking and seeing and it's just, it's a long way from Michigan. Yes, it is. It is. But (laughs) we are coming closer to you. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, we started talking about that as well, about how just amazing that would be mm-hmm. our support groups that we do here are with starlight ministries and they have a women's retreat mm-hmm. and we do um, support groups but i do feel like a couple's retreat would be a beautiful thing mm-hmm. to be able to have so that is a blessing that you've been doing yeah that. yeah well in our you know everything we do is faith-based you could tell that from from just listening to me talk but we are open to people of every denomination every faith background even no faith background um, that is certainly not a requirement to attend but that is what you get you know when when you're there is we all of our conversation has has our our christian faith as its underpinning but we've had people of, like I said, all different faith backgrounds, even no faith background at all. And everyone is comfortable because, you know, our focus is talking about our children and how we live life as bereaved parents. The name of our ministry is While We're Waiting. I'm not sure I even said that until just a second ago. And the name comes from the fact that, you know, right now I am 54 years old. I was about 44 when my daughter went to heaven. So, you know, I have a choice to make. And that is how am I going to live while I'm waiting to see her again? I might have 20 years or 30 years or maybe even 40 more years to live while I'm waiting to see her again. And so, you know, I want to live well. I want to, you know, she, she prayed for a storm, you know, that God would use her and we don't want that storm to go to waste. If she had to go through what she went through, we want good to come from it. And so that is, 
that is what we do at while we're waiting is talk about how how can we live well how can we just live while we're waiting it is such a scary prospect yeah. you know i found that when i when andy died i was 45 so yeah. not, not much different than you and it was hard enough to think ahead to days or weeks or months when i had to start thinking about years yeah it was overwhelming. Yes. I couldn't deal with that. The idea that I may have to go years or even decades yes. without Andy was just horrible. <laughs> and my husband said I had sort of a soft death wish. <laughs> yes. That I just would like, well, if I die, would it really be so bad? Exactly. Because I'm just this whole idea of having to go decades yeah. without my son it's horrible. Yes. And it's, a, it is unthinkable early on. I remember being, you know, six days in and, and not thinking I was going to be able to make six weeks. Right. Or six months. And I would look at people that were even, you know, just a year out and in, in kind of in awe mm -hmm. <laughs> that they were still functioning, functioning and walking around. And, and, you know, I, I, I couldn't fathom that. And now here I am, you know, over 11 years out. And, you know, now I'm one of those people that, that people look at and say, wow, how has she made it this long? Because I, I couldn't imagine it at the beginning. And I, when you're at the beginning, you probably shouldn't even try to imagine it because no. it's just moment by moment, day by day. And that's all you need to do <laughs> for a long time. So my friend, Stephanie, that I talked to you about, she's just over a year mm -hmm. ahead of me. Yeah. So 13 months ahead of me. And so it's always been such a comfort to me to look to her yes. because I always have someone to look to, to say, okay, Stephanie's made it to year two right. or Stephanie's made it to year three. I, I can do that. You have a little bit of a roadmap. Right. Um, and I, now I am just a little over two years now. And I know people that are earlier in their journey than I am. And they look to me right. with a little bit of that roadmap. So that is the beauty of having retreats like this is bringing people together so you do have someone to look through to take a little advice from because you can't get it from other non-bereaved parents. That's right. That's right. You just absolutely can't. They and can be very well-meaning, but it's just, they just don't know. Right, right. And they try to help and... and Sometimes the things they say are not that helpful. And it's one of our, it's one of the most common topics actually at our, at our while we're waiting weekends is things people say and how you deal with that kind of thing. At our retreats, we have people come who are very early in their grief. And then we have people come, we had one mom come that it had been 42 years since her son had gone to heaven. He was three years old when he died. It's just so interesting to have such a, such a mix of people at, you know, different time spans. We also have people come, you know, that lose their children to all different circumstances, you know, from stillborn babies to murder, to car accidents, to cancer, to suicide, to drowning, to everything you can possibly imagine. And, you know, like we were talking earlier, it really doesn't matter mm -hmm. how long it's been or what the circumstance is or how old the child was. The grief is yeah. the same. And that I, I love that about your organization, because I certainly started kind of looking. And it seemed that there were 
things for uh, childhood heart disease, mm-hmm. right? There was a lot on that big community as far as that goes. And being a pediatrician, I have certainly dealt with lots of babies that have congenital heart disease sure. and and have died. So that's not that that's not important. It is. And then things like Gilda's and other groups that are really focused on cancer and pediatric cancer. But then, you know, I lost my son in a car accident. Right. Well, they don't have bereaved parent groups for if your son dies in a car accident. Right. I mean, that it just didn't exist. So I felt a little bit lost. So it's nice to have a place like yours that it just doesn't matter. Right. Because in truth, it doesn't. Right. When we started going to our grief support groups, we had people who lost their children in their 40s. We had people who lost infants and anything and everything in between. And when I first sat down, like you, when you were reading Nancy Guthrie's book, I thought, this is not going to be for me. I have no one like me. Right. There, there were four who families who lost kids. All of them had long illnesses that took their children. And then all of the rest of them had lost their kids as adults who were 30s, 40s, married kids, thought this is not going to be helpful to me. And on the surface, you would think that would be the case, but it is absolutely false Yeah, because our pain is the same Mm -hmm. and it just didn't matter. The story didn't matter. And Nancy Guthrie's book touched me as well, even though... I didn't have that period. I thought when I read the book about praying is I thought about my desperate prayers on the side of the road sure. that they would get him back. I mean, that, those are some desperate prayers. Absolutely. And granted, they only lasted a few minutes before I knew he was gone. But it doesn't mean that I didn't appreciate that just the same because it is. It's the hardest I've ever prayed. Absolutely. Yes. So anyway, I feel like the stories. Are, can be so, so different, and yet they're so much the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you say, too, I've spoken on this podcast to people from different religious backgrounds, um, the Jewish faith, which has some beautiful, beautiful traditions mm-hmm. uh, around death, and um, the Muslim faith as well. And there are beautiful things that we can appreciate from each other, even though my Christian background certainly takes center stage of the podcast. I think it can be appreciated by all faith backgrounds, really. And we can have things we can learn from each other. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. More recently, you've expanded once again, haven't you? With your podcast. Yes. Yes. With, um, with COVID, of course, everybody's, you know, kind of rethinking everything and, you know, our ministry is a retreat based and sport group based ministry. And of course, COVID shut all of that down. We had to cancel all of our retreats from mid-March to, well, the very end of August is when we started back again with a lot of, you know, precautions in place. And so we had to just kind of rethink how we did things. It's like, what if what if we can't do retreats anymore or we can't do retreats in the same way? You know, we still have this God-given desire to to help and encourage and support bereaved parents. So the podcast was something uh, that came to mind. I listen to a lot of podcasts just driving around town. 
I've, I've always got a podcast playing. Uh, my husband, he's a school superintendent and his school is about an hour's drive away from here. So he listens to podcasts. You know, he usually gets one in all, on the way and another one in on the way home. You know, we could have a podcast. And uh, so actually, I think mine is pretty similar to yours. I had listened to yours before mm -hmm. starting hours and thought, you know, that would be something that we could do. So much is just is just that sharing of stories, you know, mm -hmm. because bereaved parents, that's one thing before, before I lost Hannah, I was terrified of parents that had lost children, to be perfectly honest. I was one of those, yes. I didn't say the wrong thing. I was one of those who said nothing, which, you know, right. sometimes that's even worse because it just, it just terrified me that I would say the wrong thing. So I said nothing. I was an avoider, but you know, now that I've lost Hannah, I just, I love to hear other people's stories. I'm drawn Me to too. hear other people's stories. And I think most bereaved parents are. So like yours, ours is a very story-based podcast. You know, um, we invite folks to come on and share their, their child's story. And then just talk about some things that are just practical advice for bereaved, for other bereaved parents. You know, mm -hmm. think back to those early days after you lost your child, what were the things that were the most helpful for you? What were there any scriptures that you clung to? You know, what are some of the things that people said or did that were helpful? And then maybe some that were unhelpful because we want to try yes. to educate people too um, that listen to these podcasts. So very similar to what you do. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking a while back, this is right around the time that COVID started, I think, right. that we started chatting a little bit and I had said, that I wanted to have you on. And then COVID happened. And I, I mean, it just was kind of everything was kind of a disaster. Yes. Then I started going through my emails and like, Oh, I was going to have Jill on, right. I really should reach out to her again. Right. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to work this out. And I'm so glad you're able to spread this message too. Mm -hmm. Because the more we can, the better it is for all people who are going through this healing to give hope. Absolutely. And that's a big focus of my podcast is to try to give people hope to be able to keep going. Absolutely. Really, when it seems like you just don't want to. Mm -hmm. And just to know that you can and to know that life is still moving yes. and still moving on. Um, and you need to be a part of it mm -hmm. and you can be a part of it even when it feels like you can't. Right. So exactly. So again, thank you for all the amazing work you've been doing. You have certainly inspired me and I'm excited if you're moving closer to Michigan, yeah. that will be a good thing. Yeah, I'll have to fill you in on that. Yeah. We're just kind of yeah, waiting absolutely. for some dates to fall into place and just some kind of final things. And then I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll be making an announcement soon. <laughs> All right. Why don't you just say your website for the listeners here too, so they know how to get more information, maybe social media. Sure. Yeah. We have our website with all of our information about our retreats and all of in our different support groups and things like that is you can find it at while we're waiting.org. There's no apostrophes and website addresses. So it's actually while we're waiting.org. <laughs> uh -huh. um, we also have, we have a public Facebook page that's just called while we're waiting that anyone can follow, but we have a closed group page. That's just for bereaved parents. That's called while we're waiting support for bereaved parents. If you put that in your search bar, I know it's a lot to type in there, but, um, 
it is a wonderful community. There are about 5,800 people on that page now or in that group. And it is um, all bereaved parents. And there are some screening questions that you have to answer in order to be in the group. We do try to be careful. You know, we don't want spammers or anybody like that in there. So we do have a little screening process. Um, but it is a wonderful community of very encouraging and supportive bereaved parents. So if you are a bereaved parent listening, you, we would love to have you join that page or that group. That sounds really amazing because some of the pages that I have been on on Facebook are not that encouraging. Right. Uh, and it's hard sometimes to even see them when I feel like it's, I don't know, like a lot of the people on there end up being, they're in a very bad place. Right. And I understand that really bad place. But I also want to move forward and not always stay in the bad place. Exactly, That's important to me. And I don't know that everywhere you go on Facebook, you get that. Right. And that's not encouraging if you have people that you're surrounding yourself with that just continue to be stuck. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. On this page, um, I post an encouragement every single day, you know, a scripture, a quote, something to kind of keep the conversation going in a, in a positive way. And it's a very, it's a very faith filled page. And that really makes a big difference. If you post on there, Hey, I'm having a bad day today. I am really missing my son today or my daughter. You'll have a hundred people comment saying, I'm praying for you right now. You know, I know it's hard. You can make it. It's just, I've, I've seen some of those other pages too. And I know exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's, amazing that this group has stayed so positive and so encouraging and I'm thankful for it so thankful for it every day um, but yeah I do moderate it pretty closely to make sure it stays that way the beautiful thing too is that I think you can say that those encouraging things to other bereaved people and not have them all assume that oh good. Now she's okay. Exactly. Because right. when you say some of those same things to non-bereaved people, that's exactly what they do. Like, oh, good. She's fine now. Right. She's over it. We don't need to worry about it anymore. So it, you almost hesitate right. to be as encouraging because you still want people to know that you are wounded and hurting and to be careful with you. Exactly. Because if you give off only the positivity without letting them know there's still pain, you know, that it's a difficult balance. It is. And it's something you don't need to do with other bereaved families because they know. They right. know you're still sad. Exactly. They know you can laugh and still be missing your child at the exact same moment. Exactly. And other people don't always understand that. Right. And that's one of the most beautiful things that we get to see at our retreats is yes. there are plenty of tears, you know, there are tears as we share our stories. There are tears as we pray for each other, that kind of thing. But there's also a lot of laughter. Um, I would say there's probably more laughter than there is tears. And you know what? There's a lot of times laughter and tears at the same time. At the same time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because that's what we bereaved parents do. And there's yes. no fear that somebody is going to see you laughing and think, oh, well, she's fine. She's over it. Or see you crying and think, oh, you know, poor Marcy, she is just never, you know, she is never yeah. going to get over this. We understand. Because you know that in three minutes I might be laughing exactly. and that's okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's such a freeing thing to be able to laugh, to be able to cry, to be able to say whatever is on your mind without. No fear of judgment. Yes. It's, it's mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's an amazing thing. Well, thank you again so much for being on. I am excited to see where you continue to move forward. It's really awesome. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm looking forward to just kind of keeping up with your podcast and hearing some more good stories from your podcast. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.